Um, it's good to be back with you this morning. I'm here. I'm heavily caffeinated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 130. I have to thank Blaze and Mark for filling in for the last few weeks. And Buffalo City Church's existence, which will be three years next Sunday. I don't think I've spent more than a couple weeks out of the pulpit at one time, so um, bear with me while I get my bearings up here. Um, thank you. I appreciate the grace that you've shown our families. We've made a, a pretty significant transition from three children to five in 16 minutes, so 14 minutes? I don't know. Something like that. It's all a blur at this point. Psalm 130 is where we are this morning. Take your Bible there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful on the table pack there. Actually, I think I only see one. So if you don't have it, get up and get it, because there's only one. So Psalm 130 this morning. Let's read this. The psalmist writes, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But ye with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in, my word, in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. When we examine scripture together, we frequently say that there are three things that we're looking for, three things that it, that it explicitly says to us. One, and first of all, and by far the most important, is that scripture answers the question for us, who is God? Who is God? And so when we go to a text like this, our first question should be, who is God? What is this text communicating about who he is to us? Secondly, the scriptures answer the question, who are we? And it's very important to answer that first question right away. Sometimes our inclination is to ask, well, what does this say about who I am? But the reality is, unless we have a good grasp on who God is, we won't have a very good understanding of who we are. And then thirdly, what does God require of me? Or, or maybe, maybe more aptly, what does God require of us? What does God require of his people together collectively as a whole? Certainly individual commands are given to us in scripture, but they pale in comparison to how many times the corporate commands are, are given. This psalm hits on all of those questions. And so we'll touch on each of those this morning. That won't really serve as an outline, but, but we will see throughout the course of this psalm that these things are explicitly stated to us. We see right away in this psalm, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to me. The psalmist cries out from the depths and pleads to God for mercy. Why? Why? Because there is a, what? A separation. There's a separation between the psalmist and his God. And the separation comes as a result of the iniquities or the sin that the psalmist is up to his eyeballs in. The depths are legal demands that are stacked against the psalmist. The psalmist has missed the mark and rightly should be, by his own admission, rightly should be branded as, as a sinner. 
But like we've seen in the Psalms of Ascent over and over again, he appeals. He appeals not to his good works. He appeals not to his good theology, the things that he has done for others. He appeals not to his law-keeping ability, or he appeals not to his success or to his own victories. He appeals not to his intellect or his understanding. He appeals not to his good work ethic. Nothing that he can conjure is what he appeals to in this moment. In this moment, he appeals to one thing very clearly. He appeals to the character of God. And there are two things that we want to consider this morning that the psalmist highlights that are character traits of God. The first thing that we want to look at, we see right there in verse 4. God is a forgiving God. And the second, although not explicitly stated, God is a faithful God. So we're going to take those things in turn this morning. One, first of all, God, he is a forgiving God. What does this mean? What does it mean? Again, look at verse 4. The first line in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. But with you there is forgiveness. God is a God of forgiveness. And verse 4 stands in contrast then with the first three verses. Because the first three verses are, are indicating to us, like we just explored, they're indicating to us that there is a separation. That there is a separation between the psalmist and his God. There's contrast. Verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is buried in his sins and he cries out to God. He cries out, help. And then he expresses the depth of his sin. If God, if God were to mark sin, who would stand? Who would be able to handle the weight of it? The sheer weight of the sin of the psalmist is enough to crush him. And the same goes for us. The sheer weight of our sin is enough to crush us. The sheer weight of the sin of Caleb Drehosh is enough to crush me. And this is what Mark was talking about last week when he was talking about the sin that separates us from God. And why is that so dramatically important? Because without that understanding, we don't understand what has been done for us. In order to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you must, you must, without exception, acknowledge that your sin had the ability to crush you and separate you from God for all of eternity. That's what the psalmist is expressing. His sin, if marked, would crush him and separate him from God of all, for all eternity. But friends, if, you're, if your Christianity is simply cultural, or if you're here on a Sunday for a nifty networking opportunity, or because there are people here who are in the same situation of life as you, or if you believe system smacks more of a political party than of the commands of Christ, if you think that the gospel is a message of self-fulfillment, if you think that those things are the case and, and more, then we can easily point to the problem. You've not begun to understand the depths of your own sin. And friend, this, is, this text is immediately then a shot across your bow. It's a stern and solemn warning. The first four verses, the first three verses leading into verse four and who God is, is in fact a shot across our collective bow. If your sin had put you in a place where, if marked, you could not stand, you would be crushed. And so maybe you're here this morning and you say, yeah, yeah, but what is sin? Oftentimes when we think of sin, we think of a list of do's and don'ts. 
right? This may be what we were taught growing up. Maybe in our homes, this is the way that it looks. It's, do these things, don't do these things. Do work hard, don't swear, don't be mean. See those posters that say, work hard and be kind to people. That's oftentimes the way that we sum up our Christian life. Work hard, be kind to people, be nice. If there's ever an anthem um, for our culture in North Dakota, it's work hard and be nice, right? But friends, just working hard and being nice to people is not, ultimately is not the nature of sin. If we violate those things, we have not yet uncovered the nature of sin. The nature of sin is much more heinous than simply doing or not doing. The nature of sin is claiming to know better than God and ordering life around that belief. Let me say that again. The nature of sin is claiming to know better than God and then ordering life around that belief. We don't have to go any farther than Genesis chapter 3. You open your Bible, you read 1, 2, and then you're in Genesis chapter 3, and immediately we have an understanding. We don't even have to go past verse 1 in Genesis chapter 3. The account of the fall is Genesis chapter 3, where sin enters the world. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, this is not what God had said. So there's an initial deception. Eve identifies the initial deception. She says, no, 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 just, just not the one in the middle. Because if we would, we would die. And then Satan continues the deception, verses four and five. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> you will be like God. That's the deception. The deception is embedded right there in Satan's statement. You will not surely die. You will be like God. And of course, Eve eats the fruit and then offers it to Adam and sin enters the world. So why, why then does sin enter the world according to Genesis 3? Not just because... Adam and Eve, not just because Adam and Eve didn't do what they were supposed to do according to what God commanded, but by doing so, they were making a very real claim about who they believe God to be. They were saying, I know what's best for me. No one can tell me what to do. And friends, that's the nature of sin. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's looking at God and saying, I know what's best for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. We look to God, our creator, our sustainer, the one in whose image we are created. We look at him and say, I know more. I know more than you. I know what it is that I should be doing right now. I'm going to ignore what you have commanded me and told me to do. And even the very fact that I, as one who am in Christ, have everything that I need to adhere to all that you've commanded me because I have the spirit of Christ. And now we look to him and we say, I know better. I know what's best. And then we make that statement and then we construct our whole reality around it. 
We construct all of our lives around that truth. And you may be saying, I would never say that to God. But friends, the reality is every time that you pursue your self-interest, ignore the interests of others, that is what you're saying. Every time you say that when you, money and material are your primary aim, that is what you're saying. Every time that you ignore God's word and God's people, that is what you're saying. We communicate far more about what we believe by the things that we do than the things that we say. But that brings us then to verse four. That brings us to verse four. With you, there is forgiveness. One of the most difficult things to get our minds around in the Christian life is forgiveness. I'm 100% convinced of this. One of the most difficult things for us to get our minds around in the Christian life is forgiveness. And you may say, well, that's not true. I understand forgiveness. My sins are forgiven in Jesus. Yes, they are. But I'm not suggesting that we don't understand what forgiveness is in a definition type of sense or what it means. I'm suggesting that we don't actually have a very good understanding of what it made it necessary in the first place. What made it necessary? The sin that we're talking about, the sin that the psalmist cries out from in verses 1 through 3. The claim that we know better than God and the order of our lives around that belief instead of around God and what he intends for us. If, if you're married and you know anything, if you're anything like Rebecca and I, and I, I informed her that I was going to use this like yesterday, so you have conflict? You do. You know it. It probably looks different than our conflict. Everybody, everybody's conflict looks a little bit different. Rebecca and I speak our minds pretty openly because we're pretty open people, and that works for us. Great. Within reason, obviously. I, we try to be honor one another. Healthy conflict is important for us as growth as people. We don't build relational muscles. We don't build, I, I would encourage you, if you are married, to understand conflict well. What is good conflict and what does it look like? Because it builds relational muscles and, and, it, and it contributes to the growth of us as married people. If we don't build relational muscles, we never encounter any resistance. Our conflict usually comes as a result of me saying something dumb in a group of people, right? That's probably the number one thing. I think at the top of the list, I could be wrong, she's probably... Give, yes, no, maybe, I don't know, whatever. doesn't matter. I say something dumb in a group of people, and then later on, she makes the violation known. And then I defend myself for a while, but then after a while, it's just, come on, I'm, I'm being a moron. It's, I just, it, that's just the reality. And so I ask for forgiveness, and then I think that it's resolved. We've done it. We've done it. We, we resolved the issue. Now, now <laughs> if you're a human being, and you're breathing air, and your heart is beating this morning, you realize that that's probably not the case. These are just immediately just, boom, they're gone. They just move, move on. I see some of you smiling. You know this is true because some of you this happened to this morning where, the, where you're, you're, if you're a woman, I'm gonna, this, this is for you. Your, your husband said something dumb or did something dumb and then you looked at him and, you, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. And then he just thought it was done. You just move on. We're just moving on now. 
And so when it comes to Rebecca and I, our conflicts usually go on because when Rebecca isn't happy immediately, I'm just like, her forgiveness should be like a, a switch. It should flip and she should have a smile on her face and she say, you know what? I love you so much. It's such a, it's such a pleasure to be your wife after I had, had said something stupid in a group of people. And then, and then, to very much to my discredit, I look at her and I demand that she hasn't forgiven me. I say, you, but you haven't forgiven me because you haven't flipped the switch and you're not smiling at me right now. To which she replies, just give me a couple minutes. Uh, I, being a red-blooded human male, think that I've found the silver bullet that will, guys, you know it, fix the problem. Right? That's just not the way it works. And I think to myself, why isn't this behind us now? Why isn't this behind us? It should be behind us. And here's the, here's the reason why I think like that. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because when I have, well, I have admitted my wrong to Rebecca and asked for forgiveness, my careless words hurt her deeply. But I've failed to acknowledge just how deeply. I may have acknowledged the wrong that I did, but I have yet to acknowledge the repercussions of it. And Rebecca's a word person. She likes it when I, when, I, when I offer encouragement verbally. She likes it when I write her poems and when I'm affectionate with my language. But being a dude, I'm usually pretty terrible at all of those things. She can't understand how I can go on a Sunday morning and speak 5,000 words in 35 to 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. But I can't remember to say good morning in the morning. <laughs> I'm not sure how that works, but... Oftentimes, our idea of forgiveness includes a getting past it mentality, and I think that's where I'm, I'm going wrong here. As oftentimes, my idea of forgiveness is just like, just move on. We got past it. I said, I'm sorry. Let's go. I know I spoke this careless word to my wife, but she'll get past it if I say I'm sorry. And that, friends, that's not, that's not really forgiveness. Forgiveness is at its heart a choice to not take into account another's wrongs in your dealings with him or her. Forgiveness is acknowledging the wrong done to you by another and, and knowing the way you could react, even the way that you may be justified to react, and then choosing not to take into account that person's wrongs in your dealings with him or her. Forgiveness then, friends, is deeply spiritual. Forgiveness then is deeply spiritual, but, maybe this is my problem, failing to acknowledge that forgiveness is also deeply emotional. It's also deeply emotional. We're holistic beings and we need to recognize that every part of who we are is affected when we are, when we are wronged or when we wrong another. Why is it deeply emotional? Because the anger and the bitterness and the resentment and the sadness and every emotion that you can think that you might experience when you are wronged, forgiveness is in making a decision, a conscious decision to not cling to those things. It's not just getting past it. Forgiveness is much more. If I speak a careless word to my wife, she could just get past it. But forgiveness is acknowledging the wrong done to you and knowing the way that you could react and then choosing, choosing to react differently. And this is the portrait of forgiveness that we see in God's character. The God of the universe, the God that is being described here in Psalm 130, the creator and sustainer of all things, who made specific demands on his creation, and his beloved creatures, the very one who, who bear his image, you and me, violated those demands and exist by nature in perpetual violation of those commands. God chooses then not to mark those violations. 
He chooses not to mark the iniquities of his people. If forgiveness is acknowledging the wrong done to you and knowing the way that you could react and choosing to react differently, then God is a forgiving God. Because friends, you and I, if you are in Christ, are marked, but it's not one who has been marked by their iniquities and will be destroyed by God's wrath in accordance with his justice. But if you are in Christ, you are marked by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And when the psalmist asked, who could stand if God were to mark iniquities? But if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could, who could stand? This is not a rhetorical question for us. There is a very clear and defined answer to this question. An alarm should go off in our minds. There is one who could stand, the God-man Jesus Christ. And while he never sinned, he took our iniquities upon him and was crushed. He was marked. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, uh, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. And then verse 10 of the very same chapter says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was marked because of his own sin. He was marked because of ours and it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But the question is, who could stand? And despite being crushed because of our sin, it did not have the final say. Do you see how incredible that is? God is just penalty of sin paid. And God is forgiving because he chooses not to mark you and me. But rather he marks his son as a stand-in. Could there be any sure glimpse of the excellencies of Christ? You could not stand under the weight of your own sin. I could not stand under the weight of my own sin. But God sent Jesus to bear not just yours, not just mine, but the sin of the whole world. And although he appeared to be crushed, he stood. And his resurrection stands as proof of it. So God, then, is a God of forgiveness. I'm losing this thing. I have terribly tiny ears, and whenever someone else uses this, <laughs> this is a great opportunity to exercise forgiveness. <laughs> so God is a God of forgiveness. But consider then with me also the second thing that we want to point out about God's character, and that he is also faithful. Honestly, his faithfulness is what leads to his forgiveness. Now, again, this isn't a word that we explicitly see in the text, but if we look at and dive in and consider verses 5 through 8, these final four verses give us a pretty clear picture of God and his forgiving nature and the faithfulness of God to who he is. The psalmist is patiently waiting for the Lord to act according to his forgiving nature. Let me suggest to you a definition of faithfulness then. I think when I first thought about this, when I first thought about this text and was processing through just like, what does it mean that God is faithful and what am I supposed to be as one who is called to be faithful as well? First thing that came to mind was, always doing what you say you will do. Well, yes, that, I mean, yes. I don't think that's the faithfulness that the Bible is talking about. I think that's integrity. Maybe we call that integrity. And maybe they're related. But I think from a biblical perspective, the way that I would define it is this doing what you believe or doing according to what you know to be true. 
doing what you believe or doing according to what you know to be true. The psalmist can patiently wait for the forgiveness of the Lord because he knows that God is faithful. Because God always acts according to what is true. What is the truth that God is acting according to? That he is a forgiving God. God says it about himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He says that he is a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is true of who God is. And God is faithful. God is faithful, friends, because he always acts according to this truth. He always acts in perfect accordance to his character. He is faithful because he acts according to what he knows is true and what is true about who he is. Look at the clue that this is the case at the end of verse 5. Second half. And in his word, I hope. And in his word, I hope. What do we hope in? We hope in God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God's word is eternal. The word of the Lord is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the one who could stand when marked with iniquities of the whole world. Who is it that could stand? Jesus Christ. And so God is faithful. His eternal, unchanging word is our solid ground. Our hope is in his word, the very word we hold before us this morning, the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ, the agency by which everything was created, all made according to the action of a God who is totally faithful. Everything that was created, everything that has transpired from the beginning of time until this point has been so and done, happened in accordance with who God is because God is totally faithful. So the question is, when we look at Psalm 130, what does this mean? What does this mean for you and me? On the last day of September in 2018 in Jamestown, North Dakota, what does this text mean for us? What does Psalm 130 mean for us? I think a couple of things. I'm going to give you three. First, we need to consider faithfulness in our own lives in response to the faithfulness of God. What does this mean for me? We need to consider faithfulness in our own lives as a response to the faithfulness of God. Our faithfulness is rooted in the exact same thing that God's faithfulness is, God himself. We must ask ourselves the question, do we act according to what we know to be true? Do we act according to what we know to be true? This is an important point. Do our actions line up with what we say we believe? God is faithful. Does that compel faithfulness in my own life? Let me speak openly here. This is a primary concern for me as your pastor. This is a primary concern that I have. That oftentimes, far too often, our lives don't express the truth of who God is as a body, as individuals. Many of us move in and out of this Sunday morning space and give a little thought to the things that are said here throughout the course of the week. The truth that's communicated 
many of us move in and out of times in God's word and give little thought to what it has communicated to us for our day-to-day lives. Or maybe you just ignore it altogether. When we say that we believe that Jesus is the son of the living God, the one who laid down his life and that, so that he might be preeminent in our lives, when we say that that's true, but when we live and that's never in our minds, what we're doing is saying that our priorities and our actions and our decisions remain unaffected by who God is. I think this is the most loving thing that I can say to you this morning. If you say that you're a Christian, but your priorities and your actions and your decisions remain unaffected by who God is, then this may sound harsh, but friends, you need to reevaluate your relationship with God. You need to think to yourself, am I a Christian? Because all of these things that I say that I believe have not yet changed anything about my daily life. If that's true of you, if your life is unaltered by what you claim you believe, you say, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but your life doesn't have anything to do or look anything like what Scripture says a Christian's life looks like, then my friends, that makes you a hypocrite. Hypocrites aren't just people who turn up their noses at people who wear jeans in the corporate worship setting. I'm wearing jeans, whatever. But hypocrites aren't just people who say, oh, he's, that guy's got a bunch of tattoos. He's not welcome here. That's kind of what a Christian culture has made hypocrites into. Hypocrites aren't just mean people who don't explicitly show the love of Jesus. Hypocrites are people who walk into a room, a church, and with the people of God on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's you here this morning, walk in and walk out Sunday after Sunday and remain completely unchanged by the truth that you're confronted with. Detroit is a city that has endured a ton of, you know it, you've seen it, Detroit in the news for your entire life. None of you are beyond that age. In 1950, the population of Detroit was 1.8 million, and in 2015, less than 700,000 people. Racism and crime and decay plagued the city. And the city just went bankrupt in 2013, just about five years ago. The whole city went bankrupt. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. But in, in the year 2000, uh, the city of Detroit built a new baseball stadium for the Detroit Tigers, Comerica Park. And when the stadium opened up in downtown, the city had some serious image problems, obviously. Many of the buildings that were close to the stadium were vacant and run down. And so the city had a problem. When games were nationally televised, the city didn't want to want shots of the downtown looking all dilapidated. You know, you watch a baseball game and then you're like going to a commercial break and they show something cool from the community. And so they knew that if a game was nationally televised, they'd show a shot of Main Street or whatever street it was, and they would see all of these broken down, dilapidated buildings because no one was there. So the city took action to fix up the front of the buildings to look like legitimate businesses were present, even though they were empty on the inside. And if you watched a baseball game in Detroit on TV around that time, and the game was cutting to a commercial break, you'd probably see shots of a downtown street with nice buildings and literally no people. The buildings were empty. There was nothing inside them for anyone to even walk their appearance was completely a facade 
Could there be more perfect picture of hypocrisy? Putting on a show while be completely unchanged on the inside. This is the opposite of faithfulness. Ignoring the truth of who God is. Saying that you believe and remaining completely unchanged. And if you're a member of Buffalo City Church, you know that we've entered into this process of finding faithful men to serve as elders in our congregation. The biblical picture of an elder is one whose character and whose actions uh, in the body of Christ in all of his life line up with the truth of God's word. This is faithfulness. This is what it means to be faithful. And somehow in many churches, elders have become the guys who run businesses and, and have are wealthy, they're driven, they're smart, who seem like they would be powerful, but intellect, drive, wealth, and business acumen are no determiners of faithfulness. Will the leadership of Buffalo City Church be marked by faithfulness? With God's help, yes, it will. But we need to heed what's contained in Psalm 130. So the question falls to you this morning. Do your actions line up with what you say you believe? Do your actions line up with what you say that you believe? If you're here and you say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and that they would be forgiven, do your actions line up with that truth? None of us in this room will say, yes, perfectly, absolutely, 100%. And if that's you, you got to reconsider a lot. But the reality is, yes, perfectly is not an answer, but we need to ask ourselves the question and be examined by the question, do our actions line up with that truth? We should be able to point to growth in this area. We should be able to say, yes, no, there was this area in my life where I, where I ignored the truth of who God is and what he's done for me in Christ for a long period of time, but God grew me up out of that. If you don't care to ask that question or you can't see how any of your life choices or directions are affected by who God is, this is a watershed for you this morning. You've come to a fork in the road. You're not here by accident. I'm sure you've heard a pastor say that before, but you're at a watershed this morning. You have come to a fork in the road. If your actions and your life has never taken into consideration who God is, this morning is important. This morning is a moment. This week, you need to have a conversation with me. You need to have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ, someone that you trust, and genuinely talk through this question. Do my actions line up with what I say I believe about the God of the Bible? Friends, your life, I'm going to say this, and you're going to say, what? And I'm going to say, yes. Your life is intensely theological. You're like, I don't know anything about theology. Don't care. Your life is intensely theological. What I mean is that your life is showing everyone who your God is. Your life is showing everyone who your God is. And I mean that you are faithful to that God. You say, oh yeah, I am. But the problem is for some of you, you say that you believe in the God of the Bible, but your God, you're living actually according to a God that is small g, lowercase g, or gods, plural. You're living according to a God that smells more like green paper in your wallet or that needs a kitchen remodel or that needs to be football practice by 4 p.m. or that makes you feel power as you climb the ladder of corporate success. Those may be the gods that you are living according to. Those may be the gods that your life is dictated by. Your life very well may be proved that you are faithful but your faithfulness is to temporary created empty idols fabricated in your own sin-soaked heart. 
if that's you, if that rings at all in your ears, and it should for all of us to a degree, the truth and the question must be applied. God is faithful. Does that compel faithfulness to the one true God, capital G, in my own life? Am I quick to abandon God's word when I feel like things are getting busy? Do I use busyness as an excuse to disengage God's word and God's people? Do I only pray when things aren't going well? When I make major life decisions, do I pray about it, consider God's word, seek wise counsel from a Christian brother and sister, or am I finances or personal gain primary motivators? A major concern, again, that I have is things simply keeping us from engaging together as a congregation on Sunday morning. And I know I say this quite a bit, but everything we're talking about is why I labor over you, why I lie awake at 2 a.m. and pray that the realities and excellencies of Christ would surpass whatever it is. Fill in the blank that's going to prevent you from being together with God's people, from engaging in his word, from loving and discipling and encouraging one another. You say that we believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who died so that our sins would be forgiven, but do we ignore that one of the most baseline outworkings of the truth given in the New Testament is meeting together to worship a risen Jesus Christ who stood because you couldn't. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near, Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Can't do that without engaging together in the body of Christ. And depending on how you break it up, there are more than 50 one another commands given in the New Testament. Love one another, encourage one another, be patient with one another, endure one another, encourage one another. These are at the top of the list. These mean, these are meant to be carried out with the people in this room, the people of God who have been set apart for God's purposes. Friends, we're not a church because we get here. We're a church because we have been, if you're here, you're saying, I am part of the people of God who have been set apart for the purposes of God. We need to actively acknowledge that truth as a body. And when we say that we believe something, but we don't act accordingly, we prove ourselves unfaithful. But friends, God is faithful. And where we stand faithless, he remains faithful. Second thing then this morning. So the first thing is that we need to consider our faithfulness in response to who God is. And secondly, then we need to think about the forgiveness or forgiveness in the way that this text uh, pro provides for us. We need to think about it very differently than oftentimes we do. Yes, again, we said earlier, forgiveness is spiritual, but it's also deeply emotional. We're commanded to forgive, to not react in the ways that we may be justified to react. And when you forgive, friends, you are making a conscious choice not to count another, sins against, another sin against you against them. And Jesus says very clearly in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6, we spent our time last year in the Sermon on the Mount, he says very clearly in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel that if you do not forgive, you prove yourself unforgiven. 
And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling with unforgiveness, again, I, I fully recognize and understand forgiveness is the hardest thing or probably one of the, the hardest things that you will encounter in the Christian life. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with unforgiveness, don't just move on, but the choice stands before you. Forgive as you have been forgiven. With the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The people of God will be redeemed from all of their iniquities. Why? The second half of verse four, that you might be feared, that you might be glorified, that you might be revered amongst God's people. Apart from his gracious action on your behalf, you could not stand. He is a forgiving God. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, he has washed you clean. And let me say this. If you, if you live in unforgiveness, if you mark the iniquities of another, if you can't, just can't extend forgiveness to someone who has wronged you, friends, if you mark that iniquity in someone, they will stand. They will. There is exclusivity in this text. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, God is the only one, if he marks iniquities, that the person will not stand, save Jesus Christ. But if you mark someone else's iniquities by your unforgiveness, friends, they will stand. They'll get up. Their life will go on. But if you prove yourself unforgiven by not forgiving another, you will not stand, plain and simple. Your failure to forgive may temporarily hurt another's feelings or maybe even deeper than that. But friends, your lack of forgiveness will prove you outside of Christ and you will be unable to stand under the tidal force of God's wrath. Your lack of forgiveness means that it is you that will not stand. Forgiveness is the marker of the forgiven. I love what Vody Bauckham says. He says, forgiveness frees you from the unbearable weight of holding on to an offense. It has been said that holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison while hoping the other person dies. We hold to the debt close to us like a cherished possession, not realizing that we are in fact the one being possessed. Therefore, forgive, because friends, you have been forgiven. Finally then this morning, I want to leave us with this because this is the most important part of all of this. Let the excellencies of Christ wash over you. All of this that is communicated in Psalm 130, well, written decades and centuries before Jesus even walked the earth, finds its fulfillment in all that it is in Christ Jesus. If the Lord were to mark your iniquities, your sins, you will not be able to stand. But because of Jesus, you will stand because he was marked for you. And so if you're here this morning and you stand in a position of uncertainty, don't walk out of this room without acknowledging your sin before God and turning from it and trusting Jesus. He bore your sin upon himself and he was crushed by it. Friends, he was crushed by it. The one who stood on your behalf is the one in which you should place your trust this morning. You will not stand if you are marked according to your iniquities. You can be forgiven. Nothing you have done, friends, nothing you have done is too heinous. 
If you're here this morning and you're thinking, how could God forgive the things that I have done? The truth of the fact of the matter is that there is nothing that you could have done that can set you outside of God's forgiveness and the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. Nothing you have done is unforgivable. And some of you need to acknowledge that your life verily represents or, or demonstrates evidence of what you say believe. So if, you, if you're here this morning, you have any questions about what's taken place here, or if any of these things this morning you need to talk more about, catch me before you go, or Mark, or, or even Blaze. With the Lord there is forgiveness, and his word we hope. Let's pray.